Let it be our encouragement and our comfort as we look at these words with the eyes of faith. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 49. Uh, the animated film, An American Tale, was released in 1986. It became the highest grossing non-Disney animated film. It was about mice who were arriving in America because they were trying to get away from all their troubles in Europe, especially cats. In one prominent scene, the mice are facing off against the cats, and they start to make a battle cry, Release the secret weapon! They keep echoing this cry until the secret weapon is finally released and sends all the cats running. Anybody familiar with that? I love that movie when I was a kid. So, Bethany knows it, because it, it came out right when she and I were young. It's a classic. In Isaiah chapter 49, God shifts the focus to reveal that he will soon release his secret weapon. So let's read Isaiah 49. Let's maybe just take verse 1 to start off. <clears throat> Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he spoke my name. So now the servant of the Lord is first mentioned in Isaiah 42. That same servant now speaks and identifies himself. And the identity of this special servant is kept an enigma at the start of the chapter. Let's compare it to what we read in Matthew 1, 20 and 22. Let's jump to Matthew chapter 1, 20 to 22. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yeah, sorry, it should say 22 to 23. It'd be silly to finish with the middle of a quote from Isaiah. So Isaiah prophesied that, right? This virgin giving birth, this one being called God with us. And then you read in Isaiah 49, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. So who is this servant? Someone that... So far, all we know is God long planned it, right? And Isaiah prophesies and Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, uh, that he has called them before his birth. And Isaiah spoke of one being born in a miraculous way. Let's also compare this to 49 verse 6. So jump forward to verse 6. Yeah, when you're looking at the, the prophecy there in Isaiah, it's about a mysterious birth of a virgin born of a woman, and that's supposed to be a sign. And here Isaiah is saying, Before I was born, he has spoken my name. And Isaiah says, You will call him God with us, Emmanuel. Look at verse 6 of this chapter. He says, speaking to the servant, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
So why does this servant announce himself to distant nations? He's a savior. Who's savior? God's savior. Right? He's God's chosen savior. Gotcha. But a savior to rescue who? Yeah, he says it's too small when he speaks to the Savior that you'll just bring back the lost tribes of Jacob. I'm going to make you a light to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. And so when the, the servant introduces himself, he doesn't just introduce himself to Israel. He says, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Well, that promise goes back to Abraham. Right, that all nations will be blessed through this, this one born of Abraham. Yep. So far, we don't, we don't have too much about this servant other than he's calling out to all the nations. And so we know the Lord had made a plan for him from before his birth. That's how much we've seen in verse 1. Let's read verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So what are the pictures? Can we elaborate on what are the pictures in verse 2? for this secret weapon. Well, his mouth is like a, sharp, a sharpened sword, which I guess could kill. Right, so he's got a deadly tool, a very powerful tool, and yet that tool is his mouth. So his, his power is going to be found in his words. Words that can kill is the way you might paraphrase that, right? He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. So. How about when Christ spoke? Did people find he spoke with authority? <laughs> yeah. Even when they tried to Pharisees arrest him. thought so. <laughs> right. We've never heard the people said they're amazed at his authority as he spoke to the crowds. And when he spoke, he had the authority to drive out demons. He had the authority to say, quiet, be still. So the disciples were amazed. Who is this that speaks and even the winds and waves obey him? He had the authority to save people too. Right. Heal them. He had the authority to say, not just out of him to the demons, but to say to the, the sinful, despairing, and those who turn to him to say, your sins are forgiven. So powerful words, life-changing words. Uh, or if you think about what the writer to the Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Or maybe we want to go to the picture in Revelation, and there you've got Jesus and John has a vision of him, and out of his mouth is a sharp sword, which is the word of God. Okay, so the, the servant now we've identified that one picture. His mouth is powerful. The words he speaks have power to cut, kill, and yes, also to heal. What about the other pictures that are found in that verse? How do those... Can you elaborate on how those apply to this servant? He's a secret weapon. I don't know. I'm waiting for you to share. Okay. I, I'm just sitting here wondering what it means. It's kind of, that's why I said this is kind of an, an enigma at the start. It's hard to say, well, what, what does this mean? So we're going to have to look at the rest of Scripture and kind of do what Christ said. These are the, the words that testify about me. How, in what way was Christ hidden and concealed until the right time. Well, just looking at him, you wouldn't know that he was the Messiah. Okay. Because he was very humble and poor and he looked ordinary. Several ways and times in his life. You, know, you could say, you know, people despised 
Mary for being pregnant outside of wedlock and Joseph was going to divorce her. It wasn't until he was born that they actually had the angels declare glory, a savior's been born. And then the rest of his life growing up, pretty ordinary looking for 30 years. Well, as I said, they had nothing about him to distinguish himself, to draw us to it. You know, no, no majesty, no. Right. And this is all seen in the life of Christ, that there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was ordinary looking. And he wasn't the Messiah that the Jews expected, at least many of them. Right. He was a, a secret weapon that they weren't looking for, concealed in God's hand, that all of a sudden God revealed, this is, this is my weapon, it's this man, Jesus. This is my son. The Word. Yeah. Talking about the Word made flesh. And also think about from eternity. Uh, before I was born, the Lord called me. He concealed me in his quiver. Jesus existed before he was born, right? He existed from eternity. But he wasn't revealed by God until, like Paul says in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. So Jesus is a, a concealed weapon that he's not seen by us until he takes on flesh. With Christmas coming up, this might be a good time to ask this. I've thought of this a few times. He was always referred to as, before he was born, he was referred to as not Jesus. He's the Son of God, the angel of the Lord, the servant of God. But he wasn't really Jesus until he was born, right? Because that's when he got the name Jesus, when he became man. Right, the, the, the name given according to his human nature was Jesus. Right, that's what I'm referring to. Before that time, his name was God with us, Emmanuel, the I Am, the Lord, right. the Son of God. Yep. But he was never really known as Jesus until he lowered himself and became a man. Right. Okay. So the man, Jesus, was hidden from eternity. He, obviously, he spoke through the prophets. He made himself known as he revealed his word, but... We did not see the Word made flesh, the, the secret weapon, until he was born. So he was uh, concealed in God's quiver. In the shadow of his hand he hid him until the time, right time came for him to be sent. And from here on, we can refer to him as Jesus. Right. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And from here on, he also has a body, a glorified one now. But we can see him when we are with him for eternity because he's taken on flesh. Uh, also, the, the picture of a, a polished arrow, kind of like a sword, this is for attack. This is for a sudden strike. And think about when the Lord made that strike, the Lord struck with a perfect blow to defeat the devil in one blow by his death on the cross. Here poetically described as God's secret weapon to destroy the work of the devil. Other thoughts in verses 1 and 2. So far we've seen... The servant is announcing himself to all nations. So he's not just a servant who will help Israel. We've seen the Lord called him from before his birth. And actually, when we look at the bigger picture, this is what Isaiah prophesied. God with us, God from eternity, who was hidden until the Lord revealed him. And all of a sudden, there it is. There he is walking in the flesh. And you have the announcements by the angel at his birth. You have... At transfiguration, him saying, this is my son whom I love. At his baptism, saying, this is my son. And there on the cross, the glory of God revealed. His, his secret weapon is his son in the flesh. As John says in John 1, 
No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. The Word became flesh. All right, um, let's read on then. So verses 3 through 6 describe the servant's mission. So remember, this is the servant speaking, and it's actually going to have the servant quoting God, which would be him quoting God the Father who sent him to this world. So the, the servant will speak in verses 3 through 6, describing his mission. So verse 3 through 6, I'll read that. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, Notice, a, just pausing for a moment, Israel is collectively refers to the nation and the people. But as he speaks, it's singular. So it's one person. Verse 4, But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet, what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, we read this earlier, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So we've got to break this down now. The servant's mission. What is his end goal? I'm specifically looking at 49 verse 3. To bring everyone to salvation. Okay. To bring God's salvation, to make it reach all the world. And in doing so, what, what is his goal according to verse 3 then, as he brings salvation? Bring God glory. Yeah. And how often didn't you hear that Jesus says, you know, I've come to bring glory to the Father who sent me. His goal was to glorify the Father as he carried out the work he was sent to do. Uh, Jesus' mission brought glory to the Father when he completed that work of atoning for the sacrifice of the sins of the world. So he brought salvation to the world and brought glory to God. Yeah. Verse 4 is confusing to me. Yeah. I can see how everything else is messianic, but that doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So verse 4, you have it sounds like he's starting to almost appear as if he's saying it was all for nothing like he had labored in vain, and that he'd somehow failed. Did the Messiah ever cry out like that? Well, on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive him. Yeah, I'm just, that was my thought. Think about Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? That was on the cross, huh? Right. So I wouldn't call it despair. It almost appears as if his mission had failed at one point. And according to his human nature, you'd look at him and say, he's pouring out his blood, he's spending his life for nothing. And yet, does it? if you read the whole verse, does it sound like he's despairing? In my Bible, the last two lines say, yet my vindication is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Yeah. So that Yet, so, but, even though it seems like I've spent my strength in vain, but, read through, through Psalm 22, the, if you read through it, it sounds at first like 
the psalm writer, which it's messianic, he's saying, you read all the parallels to Christ and the cross, like he's, he's given up, but he hasn't given up. Because he knows, despite the rejection, the mockery, the suffering, he will, in the end, be glorified and, and will rise. Kind of like, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain for nothing. In other words, he gave his life on the cross for everyone. Forgive, forgiveness for the whole world, past, present, future. But he feels like, but some are rejecting it. They don't believe it. Right. But yet, the believers is what do in the Lord's hand. Would that be his reward? Those that the Lord gave sure. That yep. What is due is the just verdict, the, the justification for the world and the reception of those who do believe. Think about, uh, you're right, to mention all the different um, rejections. You know, think of the bread of life discourse. Many of his disciples deserted him. What did he say to his disciples? You don't want to leave too, do you? And maybe for a moment, according to his human nature, all he saw was everybody leaving and wondering if he's going to be able to hold on. And then you see. Also in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's down with his face to the ground, sweat like drops of blood. And you see Jesus rejected by Jerusalem, crying out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I've often to gather you, but you were not willing. It seems like everything leading up to that moment had been spent. And even the three disciples that he brought with him as he prayed fell asleep. He said, couldn't you stay with me for an hour? Right. Couldn't you, disciples, just for one hour? And actually, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees the struggle that some of the... He sees the struggle that some of those around him have in his disciples, he says, how long am I going to have to put up with this? Almost like he's exasperated by the lack of success that there should be because of the work of unbelief and rejection and the hardness of the heart. The second half of verse 4, my Bible translates, Yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. That kind of makes me think of the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Thy will be done. Yeah, yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand. Or what is due me is in the Lord's hand. It's, it's confidence. Uh, that You hear it also on the cross. Even though he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? As he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's all poetically captured here in verse 4, that this servant, would, it would seem like he'd done it all for nothing, and yet he was confident it wouldn't end in nothing. And that's the life of Christ, his humiliation, his exaltation. There's an expression of strong confidence in the second half of the verse. And that really parallels Psalm 22, when you look at the comparison there. So according to Jesus' human nature, don't think it was ever easy for him to carry out his work uh, he lived a hard life, and as he carried out his mission, he was often rejected, uh, despised, and yet never despaired, always trusted the plan of the Father and brought glory to the Father. Well, and being human, he's just like us. We don't like it when we're rejected or slandered or whatever. And it, it should be surprising, too, because... Everybody's always saying to me, oh, really? <laughs> You know, when we're rejected, aren't we God's you know, servants? Aren't, didn't he send us? Why, why should we be rejected? Well, the Messiah, too. Um, you look at, he's a polished arrow. He's God's secret weapon. And the Lord's going to use him to reach out to the nations. And yet, it seems like at one point in his ministry, on his path, 
like it was all for nothing. That's Jesus, the garden. That's Jesus on the cross. Jesus in the tomb. Church nowadays, all over the world. Yeah. So he was confident, and his confidence was not misplaced. The Son of God rose to life. The Father glorified him. The Father um, sent the Spirit. The church has continued. Uh, the saints are being gathered. So verse uh, 4 can seem puzzling, like an enigma. And yet when you recognize God, the Lord said to him, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Didn't always look splendorous. But he never lost hope, never gave up that that splendor would be won. Okay, what is the servant's primary object of interest? According to verse 5. The people of Israel. Yeah. So the Lord, who formed me to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel. So didn't Jesus talk that way? I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And first, he wanted them to go to Israel. And even after he rose, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, beginning there, then Samaria and the ends of the earth. So his primary object started with Israel, but, but how far, verse 6, would the scope of his work extend? To the ends of the earth. Yeah. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was perfectly aware of this. Uh, he knew it would start with Israel, and he was sent to Israel. But he also accepted and praised the faith of those outside of Israel, and made sure the disciples knew that many will come from the east and west and take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God with Abraham and Jacob. Even John the Baptist proclaimed that in his ministry. When Jesus came up, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right. So John didn't call him the Lamb who takes away the sins of Israel. John called him the Lamb for the world, the, the world's sacrifice. So, and it's kind of neat here when you look at verse 6. He says, so this is the Messiah quoting the Father. The Father told me, you can do a lot more than that, son. You can do more than just deliver Israel. You're a far better redeemer than that. You're the world's Savior. You're the world's light. So Jesus made it clear his intention was always to go to all nations. Think about you know, the, the Great Commission, baptize all nations. Okay, questions, comments up to verse 6. So we got the, the servant of the Lord now has introduced himself, right? He's going to reach out to, he's announcing himself to the world because his mission is to the world. He makes it clear his job is starting and centered on Israel. He makes it clear he's a secret weapon that hasn't yet been revealed, but suddenly the Lord will use him and reveal him. He makes it clear his goal is to display splendor to the Father, and glory to God. And there'll be a point where it looks like he's spent his strength, but he won't despair because he knows he's going to triumph in the end. And his goal is to bring salvation to all. Okay, now we get to, oh, by the way, I should mention verse 6 is sometimes called the Great Commission of the Old Testament. Why do you think people call it that? Covers everything. Covers the world. Yeah. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth, a light for the Gentiles. Well, that was his commission in the New Testament. Right. What we call the Great Commission, which is that Matthew 28, 18 and following, 
You know, all authority has been given me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Well, here you see it in the Old Testament, very clear, and it's talking directly about the work of the Messiah. Right, how about we take verse 7? This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So if we take this now as this is still the servant speaking, can you find both Christ's state of humiliation and his exaltation in these verses? Servant. Or verse 7, really. He's yep, he's called a servant of rulers, and yet we know this is this is the servant of the Lord. He's he's supposed to serve no one but the Lord, and yet he subjects himself to others, and he becomes the servant of all. I'm sorry, someone else had another one. The princes will see and bow down. That's the other. Okay. Conversely, the exaltation, even though he's going to serve rulers. Princes will see and bow down. Kings will see and stand up. Um, kings, who you, nobody you know, has to stand in the presence. King has to stand in nobody's presence except they'll stand in his presence. Um, it's Psalm 2. You know, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. So, yeah, they'll recognize, they'll have to acknowledge. But also in the positive sense, um, kings later on will come to faith. And they'll stand up giving glory to God in his, in his worshiping, in his presence. Okay, so we got the exaltation in that. What else do we see for exaltation and humiliation? Pastor, in my Bible, the last two lines of that verse, it says, The Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Right. The Holy One of Israel. Yeah, you, you could read this as now, if you change the quote in verse 7. This is what the Lord says. But I think we want to take the you here. So, to him who is despised and abhorred. That's singular. So I'm going to actually take that you. I like the sentiment there. But I'm going to take that as a singular you. Okay. A singular you, meaning the Messiah. Okay. And he is literally, that's what we call him, the Christ, which means the anointed or the chosen one. So the Lord, the Holy One, chose His perfect Holy Son. What else do you see for Jesus' humiliation? So far we talked about He's a servant. Take a look at verse 7. Do you see any other things about His humiliation? Well, by being a man, it's servant of the rulers, that echoes what the Bible says about submitting to authority, secular authorities. All men shall submit to... Yeah. He was placed under the law. So part of Christ's state of humiliation is he, the, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So he placed himself under the, the keeping of the law. And so he was subject to the rulers, yeah. And we, when we see him standing before Pilate, he doesn't call for rebellion. He's subject. He says, the authority was given to you from above. Yeah. You had something? Um, well, it says he was despised and abhorred by the nation. Yeah, thanks. I'm starting to wonder if I had the same Bible here. 
pretty clear, right? Who was despised and abhorred by the nation. So if we're talking about humiliation, that's Christ, isn't it? He was despised by the nation. And notice it says, my translation has here, the nation. The Holy One of Israel, what nation despised and abhorred him? His own. The nation looked on this man who was called to be God's servant, his chosen one, and they rejected him. The, the chosen one by God was rejected by the builders, by the nation, the leaders of Israel. So, and they, they were abhorred by him, or he was abhorred by them as he hung on the cross and they, they turned away in disgust as he's dying. What's that? And his own did not receive him. John, Gospel of John. Yeah, John 1. He came to his own, but his own, meaning the nation of Israel, did not receive him. Uh, generally speaking, he was rejected by Jerusalem, its leaders, and Israel. And the notice on the cross, the Jews didn't want that, that, you know, that he's the king of the Jews. They wanted to say he said he's the king of the Jews. Right. Don't, don't put that he is the king of the Jews, that he claimed to be king. Just despised, abhorred, okay? And then conversely, even though he was despised and abhorred, this next part that we talked about, he's gonna, he's gonna be honored. And notice how he's described. He is chosen, and the Lord who is faithful, who sent him on a mission that he would not fail, will faithfully exalt him to be honored and worshiped to fulfill the prophecies. Yeah, um, you could really compare this to Philippians 2, where Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6 to 11. Let's look at that. I don't know if, I don't know if Paul was thinking about Isaiah 49, but certainly what he writes here fits. He doesn't directly quote it, but the same concepts are almost thought by thought. So Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So that, that's from Isaiah, right? Mm -hmm. And being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the being abhorred and despised He's put to death on the cross. But then, you know, you get the, the next part of Isaiah's prophecy. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So Isaiah says, kings will stand up, princes will bow down. Verse 10 of Philippians 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Except for, I guess, the kings stand up, right? And in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to display the splendor of the Lord. So you see how that all fits, right? So when you look at Isaiah 49, 1-7, see it's uh, Christ really introducing himself now in Isaiah's book directly as he speaks. He was first introduced in chapter 42 as God says, Behold, my servant in whom I delight, I will pour out my spirit on him and I will display my splendor. And now you get that servant saying, listen to me guys, here I am, I'm, I'm coming. And this is what I'm like, and this is what I'll do. 
thoughts up to verse 7. So that's where we're going to break for this section. And we're, let's review the whole section now. So Isaiah 49, 1 to 7. And we've got a little bit later start. Do we have much time left here? <clears throat> okay. So let's review Isaiah 49. So can we contrast Israel as a nation and people with the servant who speaks here? he says here, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. How is this servant in the singular, how is it different from Israel? How is he different from Israel as a nation? Well, I, I was going to say that Israel was a chosen people. God chose them. Yeah. But God also, his son Jesus was his chosen one to save us. Right, so Israel was the target, and I think we see that in these verses, right? So it says there to bring Jacob back to him, to gather Israel. So Israel as a nation is the target, the object of this servant's work, right? They're both chosen, but one is chosen to save the other. Yep. And it wasn't Jacob name changed? Israel? Mm -hmm. Sure. They're, and, they're kind and of... Isn't Jesus then a descendant of Israel? Yep. In, two, in both sense. Yeah. According to his human nature, a descendant of Israel, and yet bringing Israel to himself. The only way you can find a servant who does all these things has to be the person of Christ. Yeah, the, the servant was chosen by the Lord because he's holy and will bring glory to the Lord. Based on what we just read in chapter 48, did Israel do that? Remember in 48, it was all about, you call on my name, you invoke my name, but not in truth. Israel, you've been rebellious since birth, stubborn-necked and hard. That, that's how Israel is described as a nation. And yet this one who is of Israel is holy and brings glory to God. So he is sinless and without fault and will bear all the sins. Okay, if we have no other thoughts there, how about we go to the next one? So reviewing this section, a servant under discussion is not Cyrus anymore. It is referring to Israel. Compare this servant of the Lord who was first presented this to the servant of the Lord who was first presented in Isaiah 42. And let's see if we can find any parallels or what new descriptions are added from Isaiah 42. So this is not Cyrus. This is the same servant mentioned in chapter 42 who is Israel. Look at 42, 1 to 8 and compare it to 49, 1 to 7. So you have to page back. Notice um, some of the parallels. So... Look at chapter 42, verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. And compare it to 49, verse 2. When you compare 42, verse 2, with 49, verse 2, thinking this is the same servant, only one he's been introduced, one he's announcing himself. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me, concealed me. So both talk about the humiliation of Christ there, right? He humbly worked by the power of the word. 
How about comparing Isaiah 42, um, verse 3 and 4, with 49, verses 3 and 4? Do we see any parallels between what the servant that was introduced in 42, 3 and 4, versus the one that's introducing himself in 49, verse 3 and 4? Right. So even though bruised and battered, he will not falter till he establishes justice. And then 49 verse 4, I've labored in vain, I've sent my strength, and yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with my God. So he will not falter or fail. Israel did it many times, did fail and falter to fulfill their vows and their work. But the servant even though it got very difficult and he was nearly snuffed out, he didn't falter or fail. Both parallel, don't they? The servant of Isaiah 42 and the way the servant describes himself. How about 42? These are really close. Verses 6 and 7 with 49 verses 6 and 7. You know, considering the verses are added, you know, thousands of years later, it's kind of remarkable that these verses match up even. But 42, 6 and 7 compared to 49, 6 and 7. So it says, 42 verse 6 says, I, the Lord, called you in righteousness. He's speaking to the servant. I've called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. And then you turn to 49 verse 6. It's too small to be my servant for Jacob and Israel. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles, my salvation to the ends of the earth. So see these parallels. A servant who will not falter, even though it gets difficult, he will complete his mission. A servant who works humbly and in a lowly way, but by the power of his word. And a servant who comes for the Gentiles and all nations. So really, what you see in Isaiah 49 is Jesus echoing the words that the Father told him through Isaiah in chapter 42. I am the one that was prophesied, spoken. I will do what that servant is supposed to do. I will be a light. I will be despised and yet not fail. I will look like I'm faltering, but will not give up and cannot fail. I will work humbly to bring glory to the Father. Can you share at least three reasons why the servant speaking in Isaiah 49 must be someone from Israel, namely the Messiah, but cannot refer to Israel as a whole nation? I came up with a couple of reasons. Let's see if we can find at least three reasons why and this is the way that, uh, the reason I bring this up, because the traditional Jewish interpretation is the Lord is just speaking to Israel as a whole. And that's what he really means, that collectively the nation of Israel would be a light to the Gentiles and so forth. But can you give me some reasons why it must be the Messiah, not Israel as a whole nation? The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. Verse yeah, he's the Redeemer of Israel. Israel can't redeem itself. The nation of Israel as a whole can't redeem itself. Verse 5, it's talking about um, bringing Israel back to him. Right, bring Israel back to itself. So this can't be the nation as a whole. The nation doesn't gather itself. It's being brought back by an active agent. In verse 6, you'll do more than restore the people of Israel to me. Sure. Yep, same thought. If you take Isaiah 42, where it says that he will pour out his spirit on me, 
Do all Israelites have the Holy Spirit? No, many rejected the Lord in unbelief. So it can't be the nation as a whole because not all Israelites have the working of the Holy Spirit poured out on them. Well, a whole generation was left in the wilderness. Yeah. So you see large portions, generations of Israel failing to fulfill this role and ending up in despair. And here it's emphasized in 49, what is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with my God. He never despairs. Okay, anything else? Yeah. Um, verse 7. Uh, let's see, now i got to find it again. Okay, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. So he's one from Israel. The, saying, the One then, of Israel, yeah. And then it talks about... Okay, there's something else in there too, about being rejected by the nation. Sure, the, the nation can't reject itself. He's abhorred and rejected by the rest of the nation. And I think your first point is a strong one too. Basically, this is singular. It, he speaks in the singular, so that, that should be a giveaway right there. He says, I, I, I. It's a singular man who fulfills this role. And yeah, I didn't even catch that. The nation abhorred him. So how could, how could this be Israel if Israel's abhorring itself? Lots of reasons we can list why this does not fit the traditional Jewish interpretation, but has to be centered on the Messiah. And part of, I think, why they don't like that is the whole the despised and abhorred. They like to see that in themselves, but not in the man Christ, who was despised and abhorred by themselves, and speaking in historical to, terms. say, too, Jesus was the son of Israel, just like he was the son of David. Yeah. You know. He's referred to a lot as the son of David. There's a prophecy in Jeremiah where he's actually called my servant David. Christ is called that because Jeremiah writes, what is it, um, 600 or so, and David died in about 1,000. So 400 years after David, the Messiah is titled my servant David. Yep. Yeah, and finally, did Israel ever have a mission to the whole world? One of the offspring of Abraham, where we hear, will bless the world. But Israel never was sent on a mission to the whole world. Only the Messiah, the Christ, was. Only when the Messiah sends Israel to be his witnesses do they really have any recourse to go to the world. First you need this man, this Holy One. Uh, the servant speaks in the singular, you know, starting at verse 3 there. I have said, he said to me, so he speaks in the singular, yet is called Israel. Let's revisit each of the pictures of the servant in these verses. And let's see how they are fulfilled in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. So let's go through these verses once more and just review how they point to Jesus. Do we see something in verse 1 that points to Jesus? He was born. Yeah, he was born. So he's a man. This is not just, you know, some phantom ghost or angel that God will send, he's born. And I really like to go back to Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth there, but you can also just go to Romans 1, where Paul says, according to his human nature, a descendant. Uh, or just go to the gospel, the Christmas account, right? In Luke and Matthew, he's born. What else in verse 1 points us to Christ, the man Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Basically, he's there for the whole world. Because he's talking about islands at the beginning and in uh, distant nations. Yeah. 
So Jesus has a mission to the whole world. We see that ready in verse 1. It's good, good news to all people, the angels say. Peace to all the earth on whom his favor rests. Okay, so we got mother's womb and birth. We got he's going to all nations. Um, he's a man. Also, what about from my mother's womb he has spoken my name. Literally, when Jesus was in Mary's womb, didn't he say, you are to give him the name Jesus? As you know, Bill mentioned, that name first appears when Jesus is in the womb, Jesus. But also, go to the Old Testament. Long before he was born, his name was spoken, the, the I Am, the one who is the Lord. Okay? How about verse 2? Where do we see that pointing once again? How do we see verse 2 pointing to the man, Jesus of Nazareth? He said his, um, his nature was hidden. His true nature. Yeah. So he's, you don't really see his divine nature. He veiled his glory for a time. He was a concealed weapon. Um, when people saw him, only the demons actually recognized, what do you want with me, the Son of God? Do you come to judge me? But when people saw him, they didn't see what he was his mission was just by looking at his person. And also before he took on flesh too, hidden. The, Je the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God from eternity, but he, he was born and took on flesh. And also the power of his word, right? The people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus and the power of his word. And his word did powerful things. Yeah. Okay, verse uh, 3, what do we see in the person of Jesus of Nazareth there? Did the Father ever say, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased? Yeah. yeah, Christ was revealed, and he did that at just, as Paul says, just at the right time. Two times. Yeah, well, the, the Father speaking, yeah. We have the Father speaking at his baptism, once in the temple, and at transfiguration. So, so far we have Christ as true God, born of the line of David, according to his human nature, he's born. So Jesus fulfills that, check. Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, is chosen by God and called by name, check. Christ is honored by the Father, check. Christ is worked and worked by the power of his word, check. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, was revealed by God at just the right time. And then we get to verse 4. How does that point us to Jesus of Nazareth? His reward is with God. Yeah, it, even though it seemed like one could cry out, this has all been for nothing, he's placed in the tomb, and there's the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, we were hoping he was the one who would redeem Israel. But he's dead. It's over. They'd just given up. And yet the Christ hadn't given up. He would rise that very same day and reveal to them that he rose in victory from death. Uh, Christ, as we read on, was sent to Israel. Jesus talks about that. Christ also reached out beyond Israel and sent his disciples to all nations and just as prophesied, Christ was, Jesus of Nazareth was despised and abhorred. But prophecy reveals all will bow to him, the man, Jesus. Salvation offered in Christ, Jesus extends to all people. So, great section. We're, we're now at the, the servant has introduced himself. I hope you found it edifying to see how all this points to Christ. And this is messianic. What we're going to do next, now that we've seen the servant introduce himself, maybe we'll pick that up next time, we'll see how the servant will bless and increase God's people. So, the servant has spoken in this section, 
if you read on, so next time we're going to hear about the Lord talking about what the servant will do. And so we're going to find, just like chapter 49, verses 1 to 7, directly are fulfilled in Christ, we're going to find the following, all the way from verses 8 to 26, which will be our next section, directly is fulfilled in Christ as the Messiah, and ultimately has to be fulfilled by Him. So it's going to be a really neat study next time. We, we could reference a lot of scripture, but we'll just talk about uh, the biblical events in the life of Christ and see how this servant who's been introduced carries out his work. Any other comments or thoughts on this section? This was exceptionally good this evening. I was totally lost for a while. <laughs> and now you're found. <laughs> Not spiritually lost, but struggling to connect these, these verses. Yeah, well, glad, glad to hear that. It's uh, great when you can find messianic prophecy and realize just how the Lord spoke these things. And you can only see that with faith. When you, when you know the life of Christ and you look back on these prophecies, faith tells you God knew all along. He had a plan and he kept that plan. Why don't we close with a, a prayer about what we looked at. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being that perfect servant of the Father as you came in humility and you came to carry out that mission for which you were sent to not only rescue Israel, but to rescue all to the ends of the earth who trust in you, the light of the world. We thank you that you willingly were despised and abhorred by your own people, that you might pay the price to set them and the whole world free from sin. Help us to, along with what is prophesied, be part of that crowd that will bring glory to the Father as we praise your holy name. And we praise you for all that you have done in keeping these promises and in fulfilling these prophecies. Bless us now tonight as we take confidence and trust your word. Amen.